It's uh, great to be back at Calvary on a Sunday morning. Um, myself and John and Steve were down in Georgia for a little bit, but it's uh, good to be with you all again. As my wife just read out for us, we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 6, particularly verses 1 through 10. And I've titled my sermon this morning, What It Means to Be Truly Spiritual. What It Means to Be Truly Spiritual. So what does it mean to be truly spiritual? There's lots of different ideas out there, both today and throughout history. Uh, Here's a couple examples. About 1,500 years ago, after the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine and the so-called Christianization of the Roman Empire, there lived a very peculiar figure uh, in church history named Simeon the Stylite. And Simeon, having become fed up with the nominalism and general lack of commitment uh, in the church during his day, desired to take Christianity more seriously. And so seeking to rid himself of the temptations of the world, he constructed a platform on top of a 50-foot pole and just lived there for like 40 years, away from the world. This was his attempt at being truly spiritual. You see, because of the merging of the church at that time with the Roman state, the church had become watered down and kind of corrupted. Go figure. And so in response to this, many different kinds of these ascetic movements emerged, and they sought spiritual discipline and regimen. Another such movement, and these guys are kind of fascinating, was a group of people known as the Grazers. And seeing how humanity was corrupted by sin, they sought to do their best to rid themselves of humanity as best as they could. And they did this by essentially just acting like animals. They literally lived in the wild and ate grass and roots on all fours, grazing in the open fields like cattle. Um, This was their unique way of attempting to be truly spiritual. And we see other ideas and concepts of spirituality today. You know, we have New Age philosophy uh, and self-help books that sprawl the, the bookstores and all that stuff and the shelves. People claiming to be able to teach enlightenment or to reach the divine consciousness. In fact, saying I'm spiritual today can pretty much mean whatever you want it to mean. Uh, you can pick and choose your favorite parts of whichever religion you want, mush them together uh, to this contradictory, contradictory concoction of worldviews. Um, somehow still hold them up simultaneously, but just justify it under the guise of, I'm just spiritual. But according to Paul, in our passage in Galatians this morning, being spiritual is not about living atop a pillar, or grazing in a field like an animal, or any of these kinds of notions, or achieving enlightenment. So what is it about? Well, Last week, uh, Matthew Quick preached the last part of chapter 5, talking all about the fruit of the Spirit. And verses 25 and 26 of that chapter say this. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And then it goes straight into chapter 6 of of verse 1 in our passage today. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
And so Paul is making synonymous this phrase, you who are spiritual, with living and keeping in step with the Spirit from the previous chapter. And so from that, what does it mean to be spiritual? Essentially, it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Genuinely putting your faith in Jesus Christ and thus being filled with the Holy Spirit is the essence of true spirituality. I mean, it's literally even the same word, spirit, chwell, holy spirit. Philip Ryken says, Christian spirituality is based on a relationship with a personal God who has spoken an eternal word. The spiritual life is not, therefore, something that one defines for oneself. Rather, it is a life defined by the existence and character of the one true God. And so, if we are truly filled with the Holy Spirit and thus truly spiritual, there are some things that are going to result in that. And just as last week we heard about the fruit of the Spirit, this week we'll learn some of the practical ways that fruit of the Spirit works itself out in our everyday life. And so, starting at verse 1, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. As one pastor said, this passage is all about relationships. Right? Verse 1, relating to someone who's caught in a sin. We see in verse 2, relating to someone who's burdened down and suffering. Verses 3 to 5, how you deal with your peers. We see in verses 6 and 7, your relationship to your pastors, essentially. And verses 9 and 10 have to do with how you relate to your neighbors and those in the household of faith. And so though Paul talks about a lot of different areas here of Christian living, remember that it's all centered around this general theme of relationships. So back to verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. If somebody falls into sin, other translations say brothers and sisters. That's the general meaning here. If somebody falls into sin, they're caught up in it and they need help. And Paul says that if we are spiritual, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, then we should restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. Many commentators suggest that the Greek word here for restore restore, conveys the imagery of a dislocated bone being set back in place where it's supposed to be. The bone is restored. Now, last year, myself and David here who's just leading music, uh, we're on a soccer team together. And as we all know, David's never really been that interested in soccer or anything, so he just sat on the bench. No. Um, Reality, I was watching David play from my seat on the bench, and then all of a sudden, uh, he comes running off the field, and he's all, like, mangled up, and he's like, I think I just dislocated my shoulder. And his arm is, like, behind his neck somewhere. Uh, So one of the guys uh, comes down, and he's gets him to lay down on the ground, and he braces his foot against David's side like that, and he grabs a hold of his arm, and we're all just like, I hope this guy knows what he's doing. Uh, And at the last second, he just turns up, it's like, oh, by the way, I'm a doctor, and then (laughs) snaps it, snaps his shoulder back in place. But from that point on, David was good as new. Um, His shoulder was back in place. I know it took like months of physio and stuff like that, but, but at that moment, you know, that's, the shoulder was put back in place. 
That was the main thing that needed to get done. In other words, it was restored. Something had caused it to come out of place and appear unnatural. It was not where it should be, but it was restored back to its intended state. That's kind of the idea that Paul has here in restoring our brothers and sisters who are caught up in sin. They are not where they should be. Being caught up in sin is never where we should be. We should always be growing and desiring to become more like Christ, be killing our sin daily. But they've been displaced and disjointed by sin. And they need our help to find restoration. And we're reminded that this restoration is to be done in a spirit of gentleness, right? Not self-righteously, not condescendingly, not shaming them, but with a spirit of gentleness. And after all, that's how Christ is towards us, right? Gentle and lowly. And so why shouldn't that be our posture towards others as well? So if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, if we are truly spiritual, we ought to restore one another in a spirit of gentleness. And again, all these examples that Paul gives are real-life things that happen every day in the Christian life, in relationships. That's the theme. And notice how he adds on to this first verse. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Augustine once wrote that there is no sin committed by anyone that someone else cannot repeat. There is no sin committed by anyone that someone else cannot repeat. It's very easy to become proud, and instead of restoring someone in a spirit of gentleness, we can instead become self-righteous. And it's easy to see someone caught in a transgression, perhaps a transgression that we ourselves don't feel particularly prone to, and then feel superior. But we're to be reminded how weak we are, how frail we are, and how this time it might be somebody else caught in a sin, but tomorrow it could just as easily be us. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians ten twelve that therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And in Exodus, our book of the month for October, God says in chapter 22, verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And so there's this idea that we first need to see ourselves rightly as the sinners we are before God. We're not owed anything. If we think we are, we're deceiving ourselves. We're not owed anything. Even the breath in our lungs is only by the grace of God. And so when we understand that as sinners, all we deserve is God's punishment. That is all we deserve. And yet in Christ, we've been given everything. Then we'll relate to others better with gentleness and humility. Because we know that if we trust in Christ, we're not just filled with breath in our lungs, but the Holy Spirit. And then, without conceit and vanity, we can humbly restore those that have been caught in transgression. That's what truly spiritual relationships look like. 
the new song that um, we've been singing quite frequently, actually, Christ Be All, sums this heart posture up well. It says, I am poor and I have nothing. All my deeds cannot avail, but Christ endured the Father's crushing. He bowed his head as mercy bled, peace to prevail. We are nothing, but Christ is everything. Look into verse 2. It says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What does it mean to bear one another's burdens? What is the law of Christ? Jesus says in Matthew 22 that the greatest commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus hangs all of the Jewish law on these two commandments. Similar to how Paul in just last week's passage in Galatians 5 said, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so the law of love, of loving Christ, of loving others that bears the fruit of the spirit is this law of Christ. And we fulfill the law of Christ by bearing the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, this is all about relationships relating here to someone who's burdened down and suffering. And a burden here is meant to mean something that is simply too heavy for one person to carry alone. It could be a financial burden where someone needs our help. It could be a relational burden where someone needs somebody else to talk to. It could be any kind of struggle with sin where a friend simply needs us to help hold them accountable. And we see this in the early church, right? In the book of Acts, in chapter 2, 44 to 47, says all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In other words, they bore one another's burdens. Towards the finale of one of the greatest films of all time, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, um, extended edition, obviously. <laughs> Frodo and Sam have finally made it to Mount Doom in the land of Mordor, the one place where they can destroy the evil ring forever. But the ring has become a burden simply too heavy now for Frodo to carry. It has taken its toll on him. And because of extenuating reasons that I can't elaborate on here, only Frodo can wear the ring around his neck. He's the ring bearer. But as he lies helpless at the foot of the mountain, unable to continue on, Sam says to him, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. And he picks up his friend and begins to carry him up the steep incline of the mountain because he loves his friend. 
and he's willing to carry his burdens. And there are many different kinds of burdens that we carry and we're meant to love one another by helping lift them. And that requires sacrifice often. It means there are things that we give up, preferences that we pass over for the sake of helping another brother and sister in Christ. But typically we don't always enjoy having to make sacrifices. For much of my life, for example, my concept of giving to the local church was essentially just throwing a few disposable spirit change that I had into the offering plate. It wouldn't cost me anything, mainly because I got the coins from my parents, but uh, it wouldn't cost me anything. It wouldn't make me twinge at the thought of having to give it up. In other words, it wasn't sacrificial on my part. It had the appearance of bearing someone else's burden without really bearing it at all. Not because of the amount of money, but because of how little of a sacrifice it required of me specifically. Jonathan Edwards has, a, has this jarring quote about this, in, specifically and burden-bearing in general. And he says, some people say, well, I can't afford to give. And Edwards responds to this by saying, if our neighbor's difficulties and necessities be much greater than our own, and we see that he's not likely to otherwise be relieved, we should be willing to suffer with him to take part of his burden on ourselves. How else is that rule of bearing one another's burdens to be fulfilled? And he says, if we are never obliged to relieve others' burdens, except when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? You see, I wanted to tithe without having to sacrifice. And the truth is, is that all of us are tempted to care for our own comforts before helping someone else. I will probably not like, likely jump to bearing someone else's burdens if it means canceling a weekend round of golf, um, something which is rare to come by nowadays. Or being engrossed in a Star Wars novel, I probably won't be quickly inclined to jump to it uh, for the sake of somebody else in need. And yet this is what being truly spiritual is. Will we bear one another's burdens if it means, I don't know, giving up minor hockey or soccer on the weekends or sacrificing a vacation or forcing us to clamp down on our monthly fast food expenses so that we can actually give sacrificially? And as someone that loves McDonald's, that last one hits home. Calvary, if we are to be truly spiritual, then bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's look to verses three to five. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now, the four here, four if anyone thinks he is something, that four tells us that what follows is an explanation for what just came before. So we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And this is all about how we, again, relate to our peers. That's the theme, all about relationships. This connects back to the previous verse because it's telling us we should not pretend to be above bearing another's burdens. As if we're too good for that, as if we are something 
when in reality we are nothing. I have moments when I think I'm pretty talented. I'm up here preaching, playing the piano, not too bad at the piano if I do say. And then there are moments of clarity when I realize I'm kind of a moron. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Again, the same song, Christ be all. May Christ be all and I be nothing. His glory shines in vessels. That's us who are weak. Church, apart from Christ, apart from Christ, we are nothing. And our only lot in life, truly our only lot in life, is a place in hell. Our only lot in life is a place in hell. And yet we've been given everything. Not only does Jesus ransom you from hell, he adopts you into God's family. God calls you daughter. Son, and we can say, our Father. You know, with all the public ceremonies during Remembrance Day this past week I've been involved in, and I heard a lot of people praying to a creator, you know, attempting to be as neutral as possible in prayer, and I know, but I thought to myself, how tragic How tragic is that? That they pray to a God they only know as creator, but not father. Not father. But because of Christ, we know that the one who is creator of all things, the one who is the Lord of armies, the one who makes the demons shudder, the one to whom every knee will bow is my father, is your father, if you trust in Christ. And without him, we are nothing. And so Paul is telling us here, you may think you're something, but the reality is, you're nothing. Christ is everything. We are nothing. And any bit of good that is in us, every talent, every developed skill that we even worked ourselves at, all comes by the grace of God. And you may think, oh, that doesn't sound very nice. I kind of want to, I wish God needed me. I kind of want to be something. No, you don't. Every other man-made religion has a deity that needs you. Every Greek god needs to create in order to be happy because he's lonely or needs slaves because he needs a workforce. Our God doesn't need us, and that's actually a good thing because that means from eternity, he never changes. He's always love. He doesn't need to create something else to love. He is love. He loves within the persons of the Trinity. That is a good thing. You see, to be truly spiritual means recognizing ourselves as nothing and Christ as supreme. 
And as counterintuitive as that may seem to kind of modern age, new age, selfism philosophy, that's actually where your joy comes from. Recognizing Christ as supreme is the highest joy. Because Christ is the one thing that never goes away and never changes. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Remember, this passage is all about relationships. Here in verse 4, one commentator suggests that we're not to deceive ourselves by overestimating what we've accomplished because at the final judgment, we'll all be assessed on our own work, not someone else's. And that this concept of boasting, it's not about vain and conceited self-exaltation, but rather Paul is calling on the Galatians, calling the Galatians away from comparing ourselves to others, which let's face it, we're often want to do, and they will instead evaluate their own lives before God. Which is why the very next verse is, for each will have to bear his own load. For each will have to bear his own load. Now, at first glance, this appears to be a contradiction. Did anybody catch it? We just heard that we ought to bear one another's burdens. Now we see that each will have to bear his own load. What happened? Did Paul just... Did something happen to Paul between the two seconds it took to write verse 2 and write verse 5? Unlikely. So which is it? Well, uh, in the army, we have these things called rucksacks. And they're a part of a soldier's personal kit that he brings with him into the field. It's basically just a big backpack and, in it, and attached to it are all the essentials you need from sleeping bags to change of clothes, snacks, chocolate-covered coffee beans, all the stuff you need. Shane knows. <laughs> a rucksack, however, is very different from our big tents that we set up. Not like these six-person sleeping tents, but a very large encampment with big poles under which many soldiers can fit. It would be silly to tell one soldier to take all the tarps and large poles and everything for the tent to carry all by himself. Typically, everyone would help unload parts from a vehicle, help set it up together. Similarly, it would be equally silly for me to get somebody else to carry my personal rucksack for me when they've already got one of their own, just so I can walk without having to bear any weight at all. In other words, there is a difference between the big mod tent and my personal rucksack. This is kind of what Paul is getting at here. We are to bear one another's burdens in the same way that many soldiers help lift and set up the tent, but every one of us has our own rucksack to bear as well. And that's what Paul means by each will have to bear his own load. Many commentators say that this personal load talks about our own personal responsibility before God with the gifts that he has given us and the individual call that he has on our lives. Similarly, we cannot be made right with God because of somebody else's faith, right? Each will have to bear his own load. And we know this, right? You know, just because Nan goes to church doesn't make you a Christian, uh, despite what the census may say. Each will have to bear his own load. And we will all answer to God one day as to how we have done that. 
So, just like in Lord of the Rings, right? Sam carries Frodo up Mount Doom, but Frodo's still the one responsible for the ring. He's been designated as the ring bearer. So to be truly spiritual means taking responsibility for what's been entrusted to us. Now, I know that this passage uh, seems to jump around from one practical example to another, but remember, it's all summed up under this theme. Remember again, relationships. And if we're truly spiritual, we will seek to act like this in how we relate to one another. So there's this one coherent theme of walking in the spirit. And if we walk in the spirit, this is what it looks like. And that, after all, is the essence of love. Right? Not selfism, not self-love. That's not the definition of love. If God is love, he defines what love is. And so Thomas Aquinas once said that love means to will and choose the good of the other. Will and choose the good of the other. And we see this theme come up again in verses 6 and 7, right? Which says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. These verses talk about our relationship to teachers of God's word. So here's another example Paul gives. And, and the Bible actually has a lot to say about this topic. First Corinthians 9 says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, and this is Paul talking, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Similarly, Acts 6 talks about how apostles had to designate other people to help feed the widows in their congregation because they couldn't afford to take that much time away from the ministry of the word and prayer. It was too important. And so the Bible sees a need for pastors to be supported by their congregations because without support, they simply would have to find work to support themselves, which means they wouldn't have sufficient time to prepare and study for the preaching of God's word on such a regular basis. In fact, Martin Luther says that it's impossible for ministers to work day and night in ordinary labor to provide for themselves and at the same time devote themselves to the study of sacred matters as required by the office of a preacher. Let us be assured then with good conscience for God so ordained and commanded, he says, that those who preach the gospel live from the gospel. And certainly I'm grateful that Calvary practices this and that the partner churches a mile one mission do so as well. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be preaching right now. For without this understanding, um, I don't think we'd be able to plant churches and engage our city in the way that we do, in the way that we seek to. And this is one of the ways in which we practice true spirituality and walk in the spirit. And so continuing on with this theme of sacrificial giving, not just financially, but in how we live, Paul says in verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. If we are truly spiritual, in other words, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit and thus walk by the spirit, we will sow to the spirit. What does that mean? Last week we heard about the works of the flesh. Right? Things like sensuality, 
sexual morality, idolatry, fits of anger, divisions, among other things, there's a certain corruption that will take place if you continue to sow to your flesh. In other words, if you just simply let your base natural desires drive your entire life in every direction that you want to go and you're just along for the ride. Instead of fighting upstream against them to walk by the Spirit. And that's the essence of Galatians 5.17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. It's just as a small seed sprouts into a large plant, the sin that you deem so minuscule and unimportant today will tomorrow begin to grow like a weed, inch by inch until you look around one day and you're completely engulfed by it. Just as James says in James 1, 14 to 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. But in the same way that sowing to the flesh brings corruption, sowing to the spirit brings life. Verses 9 and 10 say, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Here we see that we're supposed to relate. Again, theme of relationships. We're supposed to relate to our neighbors and those in the household, especially of those in the household of faith. Adoniram Judson, perhaps one of the most famous um, overseas missionaries during the 19th century, labored for six whole years before he just saw one convert to the Christian faith in Burma. He had a goal of seeing 100 new believers come to Christ, and that milestone took 22 years to be fulfilled. The ministry that began as a slow and arduous and seemingly unfruitful toil by the end of his life in 1850 resulted in at least 63 churches that were started filled with new believers. The point is, you may be at a place now of spiritual desert where God seems distant. But imagine if after six years, Adoniram Judson, feeling discouraged, just simply gave up and went back to America. Just before he was about to see the very first person come to Christ. How much he would have missed out on. Right? And the promise of the passage, by the way, it's not, like, let's not get it sullied. Problem of the, pa- the, pa- the promise of this passage is not keep sowing a seed and, and don't give up because then if you don't, God will bless you with a bunch of stuff. No. Adoniram Judson spent 40 days in a tiger-infested jungle eating nothing but small amounts of rice and then spent over a year malnourished in rundown prisons. Um, the point is not material blessings. The point is this. Rather, what we reap when we sow to the Spirit is eternal life. In other words, we get more of Christ. That's why Jesus says in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so Calvary, what does it mean to be truly spiritual? 
We've established it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we will walk by and bear the fruit of the Spirit. And then when that happens, this is what it looks like. It changes, again, theme of relationships. It changes how we relate to one another. So we will restore others caught in sin. We will keep watch on ourselves, lest we too be tempted. We will bear one another's burdens and take personal responsibility for our own load to carry. We will give sacrificially, sow to the Spirit, and finally, do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. And don't glance over that. Notice Paul gives emphasis on other Christians here. So as much as we are to care for others, we are to care all the more for brothers and sisters in Christ. Which is why John 1335 says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so here's generally the time of the service in which we all ask, so what do I take away from this? Um, Well, there was a very practical list of things we can all take away. And so ask yourself, am I bearing others' burdens? Am I giving sacrificially? Am I doing good to everyone? And especially to those in this very church? If not, then how can you start that process? And if so, then how can you grow and mature in those things? But finally, if the essence of true spirituality is being filled with the Holy Spirit, then we are capable of none of these things apart from the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.29 says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So, if this morning you are not filled with the Holy Spirit, in other words, if you do not trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, can I invite you to change that? God does not stand far off, but even now is near. And like the father towards his prodigal son returning home, he doesn't stand with arms folded and a judgmental glance, wondering why it took you so long to return home. Rather, he runs to meet his prodigal son and embraces him with open arms, saying, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is our Heavenly Father's posture towards you this morning, if you would but come to him. He doesn't require any prerequisites, doesn't require a checklist, just come. Which is why the old hymn says, nothing in my hands do I bring, only to thy cross I cling. So church, let us be truly spiritual by being filled with the Holy Spirit. And in all our relationships, let us walk by the Spirit in love towards one another. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we thank you that despite all of our sin, 
you invite us into your family. You call us son, daughter. You fill us with your Holy Spirit when we trust in you. And I pray that from that, Lord, you would convict all of us, myself, everyone else here, to bear one another's burdens, to sow to the Spirit, to do good to others and especially to those of the household of faith. I pray, Father, that you would mature our faith, you would sanctify us, you would help us to walk in the Spirit towards love, in love towards one another. And finally, Father, if there are those that are not filled with your Spirit, I pray that you would stir in their hearts today as well. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.